Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Carl Truman to the podcast. Dr. Truman serves as professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's an accomplished author, having published many works, including The Creedal Imperative, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Luther's Legacy, and Luther on the Christian Life. Dr. Truman, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, look, I enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you a bit better here in recent weeks uh, when you were in Kansas City preaching for a mutual friend, and we got to have lunch together. And and we've tried to have you on campus for lectureships, but have had difficulty aligning our schedules. But hopefully, uh, perhaps uh, next year, 2023, the Lord would have you here and uh, have all of us out of COVID. And uh, we look forward to, to that opportunity whenever it presents itself. We'd love to do that. Yes, very much so. So today we're talking about the life and ministry of Martin Luther, a man who so many of us admire, a man of whom we could talk for hours on end. His life and his work was that uh, was that prolific, but also his personality and interest that idiosyncratic. And so this will be a fun conversation, I'm sure. But before we get to that, uh, Dr. Truman, give us a few words of update on you, your family, your ministry, perhaps uh, writing projects before you, and so forth. <laughs> Well, um, uh, as you mentioned, I teach at Grove City College, love teaching undergraduates there, and uh, the administration has been very kind. I'm pretty much allowed to teach what I want, which is, which is very nice. And uh, my family doing well. I'm set to become a grandfather in the very near future for the first time. And uh, my writing project, I'm actually doing a project for Broadman Holman, the, the Baptist Press. I'm writing a book which will hopefully operate as a kind of introductory textbook to uh, the origins and nature of critical theory, uh, of which I am very critical, of course. I, I need to stress that. And, and rightly point, so. But, and rightly so. But hoping to do uh, do that in the next 12 months uh, and hoping that will be a sort of textbook for uh, upper-level undergraduates or for seminary students who are interested in wrestling with that particular issue and how it connects to the Christian faith. Well, good for you. We look forward to that. And things at Grove City are, are going well? They are, yes. Western Pennsylvania, we're under heavy snow at the moment, but Western Pennsylvania is a very beautiful part of the country, and uh, the college has a very beautiful campus, and uh, yeah, I'm thriving, uh, enjoying it very much at the moment. In your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, I know that's been uh, well-received, received a, a wide distribution and uh, readership, and, and you've had the, the follow-up book, and I, I forgive me, the, uh, the name of it escapes me, but it's due out, I, I guess, here in the next couple of months. Is that right, or a little later this year? Yes, it's, it was coming out in February, but supply chain issues have bumped pretty much every book in the U.S. back by about a month, I think, so it's coming out in March. It's... Uh, it's a shorter version of a very similar argument to the one I make in the bigger book, and it's it's designed for people who don't have time to read a 400-page book. It also comes with study questions and a short video series. So it's really pitched at the, the Sunday school, short course, somebody commuting wants something uh, not heavy but substantial to read on their way to work. That's the kind of audience I pitched that book for. And what will be the name of it? Oh, sorry, A Strange New World, uh, riffing off Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, right. of course. Very good. Well, we look forward to getting that. We're here today to talk about uh, the life and ministry of Martin Luther, and uh, I, I know he's been a subject of study for you. 
and at least two books out on him uh, that you produce. But but I want to go further upstream and give us a sense as to your own interest in Luther, like what where that arose or what prompted that, and uh, how that's developed over the years. Yeah, interesting question. Uh, it was many many years ago. the The very first book I ever read on the Reformation, uh, which I read, I was. Doing classics as an undergraduate, Reformation history was not my area, but I was a Christian, young Christian, wanted to learn something about the Reformation. And I picked up a copy of Roland Bainton's Here I Stand right. uh, in a Christian bookstore. And Bainton wrote the life of Luther as readably as if it was a novel. I remember lying on my bed in my digs at that time and just turning page after page. It was an utterly compelling story. And so although I'm not a Lutheran, I'm a Presbyterian, I've always had an interest, a passion for Martin Luther since then. Of course, I went on to do my PhD looking at some of Luther's works and how they were received in the English context. And then later as a teacher at a seminary and as a pastor myself, I found Luther's writings to be a great source for thought. Like a lot of great thinkers, Luther is not somebody that you read to agree with everything he says, but everything he says provokes you to thinking. And I find Luther is one of those men who helps me to think more clearly and more sharply, even at those points where I disagree with him. So I've had a I've been reading Luther now for nearly 40 years and never to, to misquote Dr. Johnson, to be tired of Luther is to be tired of life, if, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and I would just uh, offer one word of, uh, of, of amendment to what you said. Everything you read of him prompts you to think or laugh. And uh, I'll tell you, reading Luther at times and the humor that just shows up in places, it, ju- it just leaves you laughing in your chair. And, and we won't get the, into indelicacies in this podcast, but even the scatological humor at times, it's just it's just the kind of thing that my teenage sons would appreciate and uh, develop a love for church history and theology that uh, they may not have known previously existed by uh, me passing along some of these lines to them. Yes, I, I think the humor is striking. There's actually a book, uh, I forget the author, it's a little booklet, uh, 50, 60 pages, The Wit of Martin Luther, which is a study of Luther's humor. And yes, you're absolutely right. He writes... He doesn't take himself too seriously generally, so he writes with a, a nice touch. And I joke to the students that you know, Luther is one of the few people in history that should ever be allowed to have a Twitter account. Uh, Twitter would have been a superb medium for somebody like Luther to operate in. You know, I meet your friend Al Moeller, who I served with for many years in Louisville. Uh, he once reflected with me in conversation. He said, you know, I would have loved to have studied with Calvin, but lived with Luther. And boy, I resonated with that reflection thinking, you know, you are spot on in that one because that really does uh, rightly reflect those two individuals and the levels of, of interest and engagement with them. Yes, and certainly I think as far as conversation with Luther goes, there would never have been any embarrassing silences. Uh, the conversation would have carried itself quite nicely. So I'm kind of hopping around here conversationally, but I don't want to assume that our listeners all know Martin Luther. I think we can assume they all know at least of him, but I don't want to assume they all know him. So give us the broad contours of his life and ministry and and why we're talking about him today. Yes, Luther's dates, uh, 1483 to 1546, that locates him at the the end of the uh, 15th and then on and through to the middle of the 16th century. 
in, in many ways, he's a man of the Middle Ages and remains that until the day he dies. Uh, as a young man, he started to study law, but uh, due to a traumatic experience in a thunderstorm, he joined the Augustinian order of friars. So he became a, a preaching friar. He was a university professor and a priest. Uh, due to a sort of uh, pastoral issues collide with European politics, uh, he, 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 he raised the question about the sale of the medieval practice of indulgences. There's a lot of technical discussion of indulgences, but to, to, to keep it short, an indulgence was essentially a piece of paper, a certificate that you could buy from the church that got you or a loved one time off purgatory. And Luther in 1517 famously nails these questions about indulgences to the castle door in Wittenberg, wanting a debate about this medieval church practice. And this is the kind of lighting the blue touch paper moment, even though he was calling for what would have been a fairly dry and obscure debate. It proves the, the, you know, the lightning rod for all of the pent-up frustration with the church that's building in Western Europe at that time to explode. And Luther goes on to become a great figurehead of the Protestant Reformation. Perhaps of all of the Protestant reformers, he's the biggest personality. Uh, his life is very dramatic. He's put on trial by the Holy Roman Empire. He's kidnapped by his own men to keep him safe. Uh, he marries. He has children. He clashes with Erasmus, the greatest intellectual of his day, over the issue of uh, the human will. He, uh, on the sort of the, the negative side, he splits Protestantism down the middle by refusing to uh, to, to sign, uh, fully sign up to a statement of faith with Huldrych Zwingli, uh, the reformer of Zurich, because because of the, the differences in their views over the Lord's Supper. And he goes down in history, I think, as a, a figurehead. Uh, even in the 17th century, it's interesting when you read Reformed theologians of the 17th century who, who would really strongly disagree with Luther on various points. They rarely, if ever, criticize, they'll criticize Luther. They'll criticize Lutherans, but Luther himself has this super heroic sort of stature among Protestants that he, more than anybody else, uh, symbolizes uh, a stand against Roman Catholic tyranny uh, and a stand for uh, the teaching of the Word of God. That's how he sort of received in our tradition. He was a more ambiguous figure than that in many ways, but certainly he's looked at as the great hero of, of, of Protestantism. So you mentioned he is, re is, is perceived by many as you know, almost achieving a superhero status and uh, you know, even a, a mythology built around him. And I suppose two scenes for that. One would be, you know, the 95 thesis nailed on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And then, and then secondarily, and more so, um, folks envisioning Luther kind of strutting into the Diet of Arms and, 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 and savoring getting to utter words of denunciation. But a more careful reading is it's not really how those scenes unfolded. So give us a sense more deeply into the, those two different settings and what actually took place. Yes, well, as to the first, the, the, the nailing of the 95 Theses becomes a bigger event after the event than it was at the time. In many ways, Luther was merely advertising. He was a confused pastor. He wanted some clarity on the practice and sale of indulgences. He's calling for a university debate on it. Nothing remarkable about that. 
in later Protestant uh, iconography and legend, it becomes, you know, as he's ne- putting the nail into the, the castle door, he's sort of driving a stake through the heart of the church kind of thing. But that was not the case at the time. What happens really is that these 95 theses take on a life of their own as a popular pamphlet of protest in the months after the action. And if you read the 95 Theses today, if, if you don't have a decent grasp of certain elements of late medieval theology, they will seem rather obscure and dry and tedious to you. And, and indeed they were. Uh, it's, it's odd that Luther had said more radical things before and nobody paid any attention. He certainly wanted to, want to say more radical things later, but the actual event of the 95 Theses was made bigger by posterity, I think, than it was at the time. What it does is it triggers a series of events that will culminate at the Diet of Worms in that uh, as, as Luther becomes, as the church really refuses to clarify its position on indulgences and digs its heels in, so Luther starts to dig his heels in and make more demands for more clarity. And he becomes more and more aware that he's got this, for a few years anyway, this remarkable coalition that backs him. You have the German nobility, you have this fascinating character, Frederick the Wise, who is the protector prince of the territory where Luther lives. You have the peasants and you have the merchants. All of them are sort of united in their dislike of the church. And for a few years, they stand solidly behind Luther. So Luther's confidence is growing and the church really mishandles him. The church, instead of effectively having him sent to Rome straight away to be dealt with delays and delays. And finally, they got a problem on their hands. They excommunicate him and he doesn't go away. Normally, you know, the answer to getting rid of a heretic is you excommunicate them. They excommunicate Luther and it just makes him bigger. Uh, and so he's summoned not by the church, but by the Holy Roman Empire, which was the sort of the power that governed the, the central lands of Europe, much of modern day Germany, for example. He summons to appear at an imperial diet, a, a council of the great and the good, chaired by, by the emperor. And Luther goes there to really to, to be asked to recant his, his books and his theology. And he refuses to do that. And in a famous speech that ends with the, uh, the line, here I stand, uh, I can do no other. He stands as a sort of one man alone or that's what it looks like, against the might of the empire. And what's remarkable is he lives to tell the tale. As he's leaving uh, Worms after the Diet, he's kidnapped by Frederick the Wise, that's his boss's own men, and taken to a a castle, the Wartburg Castle. But Luther survived, whereas exactly 100 years previously, John Huss Mm. had been in pretty much the same position. And he had been, despite having a safe conduct to the Council of Constance, the Imperial Council of Constance, he'd been arrested at Constance and then burned at the stake. So the fact that Luther makes this stand and the fact that he lives to tell the tale, nobody had ever done that in history. And that makes him, it's interesting, around 1521, you start to have people buying Luther posters in Germany ordinary families want a picture of this man on the wall of their house because he is the guy who's done what nobody's done before. When you think about it, what does that make him look like? That makes him look like God's man for the hour. This guy is going places and surviving that nobody's gone to and survived before. He must be God's man. There must be divine protection here. So Luther takes on this 
characteristic of being, you know, I, I think I used the term superheroic earlier on, Luther quite literally becomes a superhero in the Germany of his day because he seems invincible, utterly invincible. Which leads us, I guess, to the next topic that's often uh, misunderstood and the question that's often answered incorrectly, and that is this. Did Luther intend to launch a Protestant Reformation that included, in essence, a, a new religious superstructure, a new denomination, a, a full fissure, a full fracture with, a full separation from the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, absolutely not. And I think this is one of the areas where Protestants, because we know how the story ends, and we quite like how the story ends, it facilitates our denominations, we can misread Luther. If you'd been sitting with Luther in October 1517 and had said to him, in 15 years' time, the church will be divided because of things that you do, there will be at least two churches, if not many more, in Europe at this time, Luther would not have been able to imagine at a conceptual level what you're talking about. For him, the church is one. It would be impossible for him to visualize what a divided church would look like. So when he nails the 95 Theses to the castle, uh, the church door in Wittenberg, um, he's calling for a debate. And if anything, his deepest desire is, one, that the church will clarify his position. Or two, if the church's position is wrong, the church will rectify that and make its position correct. Uh, Luther has no desire whatsoever to split the church. The split really occurs as, as both sides become increasingly dug in in their position. The split emerges over time, if you like. It was never part of Luther's original design. And I think as Protestants, that's something we, we miss, that when we read the Reformers, we don't realize how confusing and indeed how painful it was for them to see the church institutionally divided. It's routine for us. You're a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian. That doesn't come between us. It's not something we lie awake at night worrying about. Luther and his contemporary reformers would have lain awake at night worrying about the splits in the church because it should not be as far as they're concerned. They never intended it, and it should not be. So then, when you think about his, his writing, his preaching, his teaching, what about Luther made him so special, so unique? And then I want to kind of put an asterisk by that question and, and kind of tuck in a secondary one. When you think about, you know, the Protestant Reformation as a whole and all that would fall in the decades and centuries that, 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 that would come. Yeah. Do you, and I realize you're a historian, not a sociologist, and I'm kind of setting up here, but uh, do you see in Luther, you know, a, a, in a sense of Thomas Carlyle, this, this great man who, who really did uh, who really was a hinge or the hinge with Calvin upon which, you know, Western civilization and, and, and Christianity swung? Or, or do you see any sociological in the pew, so to speak, forces that just the laity were so fed up, something, you know, the volcano was about to blow one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I think the volcano is going to blow. There's no way that at the end of the 16th century, you're going to have the church as it was at the beginning of the 16th century. There are social, economic, political reasons that the, the old structures have got to give way. The structures are already crumbling, really, from the beginning of the 15th century with the three popes, etc., etc. Um, having said that, I think there are figures in history who put their personal stamp on things 
in a remarkable way. And Luther's certainly one of those one. Uh, he's a giant of a personality. Nobody, I think, without his strength of personality could have pulled off what he did at the Diet of Worms, for example. Uh, nobody without his strength of personality could have gone head to head with Erasmus in quite the brutal way that he did. Again, on the sort of more ambiguous side of things, uh, nobody without his strength of personality would have split Protestantism in 1529 as it splits. If we could imagine, you know, Luther dies in 1526, let's say, and leadership of the Lutheran Church passes to his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, who is a much more gentle fellow and a much more diplomatic fellow. I think you probably have seen agreement of some kind reached the Marburg Colloquy at 1529, when that's where Protestantism for the listeners, that's where it splits into the Reformed and Lutheran strands. Right. And they really don't like each other. You know, particularly the Lutherans hate the Reformed more than they hate the Catholics. I mean, it really is that bad uh, in the Reformation. I think uh, Marburg would have ended very differently. And that means that the history of which you and I uh, and, and your listeners are heirs, uh, Jason, would, would be very, very different. So I think we have to give Luther credit for both the positive strengths, some of the positive strengths that come through in the Reformation, and also the tragic breach within Protestantism that undoubtedly weakened the Protestant cause in the 16th and 17th centuries. So then thinking about the 21st century in Martin Luther, let's try to kind of pull the conversation together with a couple of final questions. You know, when you think of pastors uh, in evangelical churches today, what is the gifting or the conviction or the skill set in Luther that you would encourage contemporary pastors to adopt? Good question. A couple of things. One, uh, a lot of his pre, a lot of his sermons are not great examples of exegesis as we would do it today. So I wouldn't say you know read Luther's sermons in order to. Uh, to know, learn how to exegete the Bible. But I would say, read Luther's sermons for getting a feel for the romance of preaching. Luther had a powerful theology of preaching. He knew that preaching wasn't just explaining the Bible. Preaching was God changing things by speaking to people. It was the speech of God. So I would say, read Luther for some, and read some of his theological treatises, like Freedom of the Christian Man. Read these works to, to get a feel for the power and the romance of preaching. We all know that preaching week after week can become tedious. We all need to be re-excited about preaching every now and then. Luther's a great way of doing that. His vision of preaching and his vision of what preaching could do is one that should inspire pastors. Secondly, uh, Read his, his short catechism. Luther is the first question and answer catechism writer, I think, in the history of the church, who was a parent, who knew what it was like to talk to little children. The Q&A catechism, the, the small catechism of Martin Luther, is a masterpiece of boiling down complicated theological ideas to the level of a child. And Luther was fascinated by children. His writings are full of allusions to children. He's constantly talking about how we as adult believers need to be childlike. We need to look at our children and see them as models of dependency upon God. So read a small catechism for that. And then thirdly, the thing you alluded to earlier on, I, I think humor. Uh, there's a lot of talk these days about abusive pastors abusing congregants, and, and there have been some terrible things done. I've met many congregants in my time who've never been abused by a pastor. 
I have never met a pastor who hasn't been abused in some way by congregants. Pastoring can be a tough and a lonely job. And Luther as reformer, that was the toughest and loneliest job, particularly in the early 1520s when everybody's out to kill him, essentially. How did he survive? I think he survived by seeing the comedy that there is in life, the absurdity that there is in life. So I would urge pastors as well to to read Luther, read his table talk. That's where a lot of this comes out. Read his table talk to get a grasp of, uh, of how humor can sweeten the pastoral life, how humor can be very powerful uh, analgesic or very powerful antibiotic concerning the kind of things that, that come at pastors with disturbing regularity on email, etc., from from congregants. Dr. Truman, we'll have to leave it there, but before we formally conclude, I do want to once again commend your books, all of your books, especially germane today's conversation, uh, your book, Luther's Legacy, and uh, the book I have in my hand as we talk, Luther on the Christian Life. Dr. Truman, thank you so much for your time and for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com. 